Let us pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning to sit at your feet, to learn from you, to watch you, to imitate you as you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Come, O Lord, and fill us with understanding that we might truly grasp and comprehend what it is that you expect of us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know, today we come to one of the most important passages, if not the most important passage, in the book of Philippians. It is, however, as we will discover, one of the most difficult passages to interpret. There was a man, A.B. Simpson, or A.B., sorry, A.B. Bruce, a Scottish theologian, who noted that the diversity of opinion prevailing among the interpreters in regard to this passage is enough to make the meaning of the text to fill the student with despair and afflict him with intellectual paralysis. He wrote this 125 years ago. A lot has happened in a century. Since this time, a commentator by the name of Joseph Hellerman a few years ago wrote this about this passage. The literature on Philippians 2, 5 to 11 has become virtually unmanageable. Scholars have written entire books on one word. So it appears that our task this morning is rather daunting. To sift through all this information and try and present something that reflects what God wants us to learn. Well, not to worry. We'll try and avoid this affliction of despair. Because as we approach this passage, we want to recall one thing important. And that that is that um, Paul wrote this letter to a church. It's a letter. He's a pastor. He writes to a church of believers who will are immersed in the world of their time are also learning how to live in the world of Christ. As we saw last week, Paul longed, he longed, for the joy of seeing the Philippian believers live as one community, in humility, growing together toward maturity, and becoming Christ-like in every aspect of their lives. We should have the same desire. What Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to a city in Greece applies to us today in the city of Montreal. It's the same stuff we need to learn. Now, before we settle into the details, before we actually unpack the passage, I want us to first pause and look at a few helpful things at the very beginning that I hope will help us navigate through the passage. And the first thing is that verses 5 to 11 are connected to verses 1 to 4. They go together. Many times preachers will preach the whole passage, 1 to 11, and not break it up. We saw last week where Pastor Brent emphasized from the passage unity through humility because Paul identified several characteristics that the church should possess. He said, be of the same mind. The word mind is important. Have the same love. Being in full agreement with one another with one mind. In humility, counting others more significant than yourself. And 
Look out for the interests of others and not just your own interests. So this connects with verses 5 to 11. These verses amplify. They help understand the first four verses. And you can divide the passage in the way on the screen. Verse 5 is to imitate the attitude or mindset of Christ. And then verses 6 to 11, the humility of Jesus and the exaltation of Christ. Now, I want you to notice, in verse 5, it tells us what we're supposed to do. Imitate Christ. Verses 6 to 11 tell us how and why we must imitate Christ's humility. Now, these latter verses of 6 to 11, they're known as a poem or a hymn to Christ. And we're already familiar with the words that uh, were read to us this morning. And we're going to look and see that this text describes Jesus in a certain way as both God and human. And in particular, verses 6 to 8, which are the most difficult verses for us to grasp, present Jesus as the ultimate model and example of the humble, self-sacrificing, and self-giving service that Paul urged in verses 1 and 4 the believers of Philippi to imitate. Now, Hellerman, a commentator, adds this. Within the flow of Paul's letter, the larger intention or purpose is not so much to teach us about the nature of Christ. This is important. That is not his primary task. It is more to show what Jesus chose to do with his deity. What did Jesus do with his position of authority and deity as the pre-incarnate Son of God? Now, in Paul's other letters, he often adapts, uh, he borrows, he takes different cultural elements, and he filters them through his presentation of Jesus. And it's no different here in this passage, where he's focusing on the status or position of Christ. Let me explain. In the day, in Roman culture, the idea of uh, rank or status, privilege, position, were all vital social and political realities of life. Prominent people, those of wealth and status, would go so far as to construct what are known as speeches of praise to themselves. They would reflect their honors, their titles, their position, and thus elevate themselves above their peers. Now, here's an example from an inscription from Philippi, just after the time that Paul wrote. It reads this way. Publius Marius Valens, son of Publius, from the tribe of Fultinia, honored with the decorations of the city council, also himself a city councillor, and a priest of the imperial court, attaining to the highest office in the city and a sponsor of the Olympic Games in Philippi. This was inscribed to show this man's authority and prestige. By today's standards, I know it sounds kind of tame for self-promotion. But the idea is to exalt oneself, to lift oneself up. This should sound familiar. Because in our day, we continue to see such self-honoring exploits. In, for example, social media. If a person receives enough thumbs up on their Facebook post, boy, they're doing pretty good. They are important. 
if they have many followers, millions of followers for their Twitter account, Twitter feed, they must be important. Why else would they listen to them? Everyone likes to be liked. We have celebrities, politicians, musicians, sports personalities. Everyone's clamoring, clamoring for attention. Look at me. I am special. I know you're looking at me right now, and that's not what I meant by saying, look at me, I'm special. We're all special because Christ has made us that way. We even have public relations companies whose sole purpose is to protect, enhance, or build a person's reputation in a whole variety of ways. So in the 2,000 years since Paul wrote this letter to a status-seeking culture, we come to today, not much has changed. All this changes that we're better at it. All of us have access now to promote ourselves. We've remained a status-seeking culture, straining for popularity and attention from selfies to viral videos to other ways of self-promotion. Later, when we come to verses 6 to 8, I want you to see what Paul does. He takes this whole thing and he flips it upside down, completely different than what you'd expect. We'll see that Paul uses the example of Christ to emphasize the type of relationships believers should possess with each other, which turns out to be rather contrary to the prevailing society around them and around us. Now, aside from this overview of the flow of his thought, there are a couple of key concepts I want us to, to look at and remember. The idea of mind in verse 2 and 5 put this text together, as does the word humility. These are two important concepts. Another concept is what the ESV uses the word form. He describes Jesus in the form of God and the form of a servant. And the last thing I want you to notice as we go along, and I'll point this out, is the idea of movement. This passage has motion. It has movement. In verses 6 to 8, Paul first plunges us downward as we watch Christ go from the status of deity downward to the status of a human, and even lower to die on a cross. And then we're going to see in 9 to 11 that Paul dramatically pushes us upward as we explore the exaltation of Christ. So this motion, this down and up, I want us to remember and look at because at the very heart of Paul's passage to the believers, whether in his day or ours, is that we should imitate this attitude of Christ in our relationships with one another. What this attitude looks like, what does it mean, why should we even bother with doing this, that's going to occupy the rest of our time this morning as we explore this together. So let's begin with verse 5. Paul says to the Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind. This mind, as I said before, points back to the first four verses. Indeed, it points even further back to 127, where Paul had written, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing from one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So verse five, what we should do, connects with the previous verses. 
You got that. It also connects with the next section of verses. But as for this word mind, what does mind mean? Well, it's mindset. It's attitude. It literally means how you think. It's the way we think. So he's saying, have this in your mind, have this mind or attitude. The way Christ thought is the way you should be thinking about your relationships. He also says, have this mind among yourselves. So it's not just good enough for an individual to be humble and contrite and have a nice attitude. This is among yourselves, among plural, all of us. It's to be a shared attitude, not just held within, but it belongs to all of us. That's how we know it even exists. That's the easy part of this verse. The hard part of this verse is how do we translate the second portion? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, or which was also in Christ Jesus. Can you see the difference? It depends on your translation, but there are different ways of translating this because Paul never put a verb in the second half of the verse. The reader has to supply that verb. In one option, because there's two basic interpretations, I'm just going to drop these in, they're my way of explaining it. But the first is prescription. You know, to prescribe something, I'm telling you what to do. This is what we should do in the NASB and the NIV translates it as, which was also in Christ. Which Paul will then explain in verses 6 to 8 and 6 to 11 as our example. So we have this attitude, we have this mind, because Jesus has it. He's our example. So we have to add the word was to the sentence. Because literally, if I translate it word for word, it would be, have this attitude among yourselves, which also you have the attitude in Christ Jesus. Which also you have the attitude in Christ Jesus. The only verb is the attitude. So it's a little difficult to get. One example for this would be when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And he said, I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to one another. The other option, which the ESV takes, is provision. This focus is not what we should do, but how can we possibly do this? How can you possibly have the mind of Christ? How is that possible? We are to imitate the attitude of Christ because we are given his spirit. Apart from Christ, we cannot collectively have this attitude. So this interprets the second part of this verse as our union with Christ, which was also the attitude which was also in Christ, which is now in us. In Romans 15.5, Paul wrote this. He said, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So, John, uh, this passage is almost similar to Romans 15.5. So, which is it? Is it, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus? Well, being a good Canadian, I say it's both. Paul may well have intended 
both ideas. He didn't state clearly exactly what he meant. Maybe he wanted us to figure that out ourselves. On the one hand, living in the context uh, of having this mindset, we look to the model of Jesus. Makes perfect sense. He is our example, our model. And this fits well with the flow of Paul's thought as we go along. And it's favored by most commentators. They're kind of like this. Uh, Okay, this one. It's very, very close. On the other hand, we acknowledge the reality that without union with Christ, without union with Christ, we cannot possess this attitude at all. It'd be pointless to, to say, I want to be like Christ and you can't be like Christ. Why would he say it? It must be able to be done. And that's because we belong in Christ. So the reason why we should follow this example is because Jesus has this attitude. How we can possibly do this is because Jesus puts the attitude in us as we're united with him through faith. So he's the one who empowers and places his attitude or mindset within us. Because it's contrary to say, yep, I'm a pretty humble guy. I'm putting that in my Facebook post. It doesn't work. It can't come from us. It has to come from the Lord who fills us with that. So a way to expand this verse would be to say something like this. Have this attitude from verses 1 to 4 among yourselves, that is in our relationships, which was also in Christ, who is our example, and in us because of Christ. He's our source. So now that we know what to do, that is to imitate Christ's attitude, now we come to figuring out how we imitate that. What does that look like? What is Christ's attitude? It's enough to say follow, but what exactly was his attitude? What is his attitude? Well, David Garland, about this passage, verses 6 to 8, he writes this. The issue that is uppermost in Paul's mind is the harmony of the community. And humility and selflessness are the means by which to attain that harmony. So humility and selflessness together working out, create harmony. It is not enough to tell people to be more loving and have a better attitude and be humble. One must motivate them through example. And what an example we have in Christ. So let's look at verses 6 to 8. Who, that is Christ, though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now here's our challenge for this morning. Many commentators point out a number of technical issues about what this passage means. It's not so obvious. But before I get to that, I want you to notice this is the beginning of the downward movement in the passage. We're watching Jesus begin to descend from this place of deity to a different place. Now, three other commentators have noted a number of issues. What exactly does form of God mean and form of servant? What does it mean to be equal with God? What does it mean that it's not grasped? What is that supposed to mean? What does it mean to empty yourself? How did Christ empty himself? And lastly, being born in the likeness of men. 
what does that mean? So we begin with the idea of form. It comes from the word morphe, and it simply means the outward appearance of an inner reality. An outward appearance of an inner reality. When you marry form with God, form of God, it's the outward appearance of the inner essence of the nature of God. So it says, though he existed in the form of God, that is, Jesus has the outward appearance of the inner reality of deity, he is displaying that. Now remember, Paul is writing to a status-focused society. So outward appearance is very important. And that's why I'm emphasizing this. As we go along, hopefully it will make sense to you. But note that Paul does not say that he existed the form of God. It's in the form of God. Being or existing in the form of God becomes a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ, clothed, in O'Brien's words, clothed in garments of divine majesty and splendor. So the direct implication is the deity of Christ. His deity is on display. In Hebrews 1, 3, we have verses that describe it in this way, tell us clearly. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. That is, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Or John 14.7-9, where Jesus himself says to the disciples, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have what? You've seen him. And of course, that doesn't make sense to Philip. And he says, well, Lord, show us the Father. That's enough for us. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you still not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus is the exact representation, the outward appearance. He's displaying that outward appearance of deity. So Paul is emphasized not only the nature or deity of Christ, but also how this nature appears. In other words, Paul draws attention to Christ's outward appearance and its implication for his status and position based upon his essential nature as God. This shouldn't surprise us. We regularly use outward appearance for decisions we make. You see a police uniform, oh, that must be a police person, so I must be careful. Slow down a bit. You see a person in a uniform, on a tie and suit. That creates an image in your mind. You see a homeless person on the street. That also affects how you look at the person. That's their position. You make a judgment based upon that. Now our text goes on and says that this equality of God that he possesses, he didn't count that as something to be grasped. The key point here that I want to keep emphasizing in this message is look at what Jesus does with his deity. Look what he does with his divine status and position. Because there are two vital issues here that we need to grasp. And the first one is equality with God. Most of us, in hearing those words, would say that means Jesus is God. That's his nature. And this is true. But Paul's doing something in addition to that. When he uses the phrase equality with God, 
This is presented within a Greek-Roman cultural context. With its emperor worship, with gods in every corner that people would venerate and worship. So a second century, a second century text says this, what is God? The answer exercises power. Who is a king or what is a king? The answer, one who is equal with God. That is a king can behave like God doing whatever he wants because he has the power, the wealth, and the prestige. So Paul's giving a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ where Christ is in the form or nature of God and then displays and shines that glory. In John 17, 5, Jesus in his priestly prayer said, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This makes the gulf between the status of God and the status of people quite broad, quite profound. So the descent is quite steep. When Paul says the quality was God, he's speaking also, as I said, of position, not just nature. Jesus did not count equality or uh, status or position with God, a thing to be grasped. But what does this word grasped mean? I know this is technical, but it's important for us to get this so that we can appreciate what he's doing. He says it's not something to be grasped. What does this mean? This word means something that you rightfully possess. It's yours. But you don't hold on to it. By claiming, grasping, or seizing. The NIV translates this passage as not something to be used to his own advantage. You see, though Christ is God and exhibits the status and position of God, he did not cling or use this position for his own advantage. This is the key to unlock this passage. In Philippian society, as in ours to a large degree, the assumption is if you have power and status and wealth, you can use that to your own advantage, and why wouldn't you? It's yours. If you have the wealth and position and power, who wouldn't use it for their own advantage? Now look what Jesus does, though. He doesn't use it for himself. Romans 15.3 says, For even Christ did not please himself. And Matthew 26.53 says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? This is Jesus saying in the, the Garden of Gethsemane when he's being arrested. He says, Do you don't think I can appeal to my father and he will at once send 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scripture be fulfilled? It must be this way. O'Brien simply says it this way. This is about giving, not getting. He uses his place of deity not to get, but to give. And this is crucial for us to understand in this text. Christ did not use his power and position for himself. Instead, he used his position to give himself away to redeem people from sin inherent within and deliver us from the wrath to come. I want to pause here. Do you realize how incredible this is? This is a picture into the very heart and character of God, the one we worship. This is how he thinks. This is his attitude, to give, not to get. I'll give you an illustration. In Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted. He's in the wilderness, 40 days, fasting. He's not drinking any water. He's hungry. 
the enemy comes along, and the enemy knows full well this is the Son of God, this is the Messiah. He knows who he is. Not a surprise to him. That's why he's there. And so he tries to tempt Jesus to do what? To demonstrate your power. Show you have the power. Use the power of deity. You're hungry? Hey, take these stones and make them into bread. You can do it. You're God. Throw yourself off the temple. You won't die. You're God. Show me. Show me that you're the, the one who is the God of the universe. You can have all the glories of the kingdoms right now. They're yours. Just take them. What does Jesus do? He did not count his status as God something to be used for his own advantage. He said no. Because that temptation would come repeatedly in the life of Jesus, even on the cross when he was mocked. And we'll celebrate later the communion where people said, hey, if you're the the Messiah, come off the cross. Come on, come on down, show us. Jesus did not count equality as God as something to use for his own advantage. He set it aside. That's our example. That's the attitude that Paul's talking about. So despite this outward appearance of Jesus, he chose to use his position to descend, to go down, by taking the form of a human being and lowering himself. So Paul continues, but Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The idea of emptying himself, and this is important, Jesus did not empty himself of his deity. He didn't cease becoming God. He remained God throughout this whole experience. What this refers to, and this is why I was emphasizing it, it refers to his rank and status as position of God. He laid that aside. He emptied himself of that. And this is done at the Incarnation. Perhaps now this passage will make a little different sense to you. When Jesus, at the Last Supper, took off his robes and put on a servant's towel, got a basin of water, and went to wash the disciples' feet, as the servant would do. When he came to Peter, what happened? Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him and said, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. What was Peter's objection? Lord, this is beneath you. You're not a slave, you're God. You're the Messiah. You shouldn't be doing this. And Jesus says, yes, this is what I'm precisely I should be doing. Because I left that status and position behind to become a servant and a slave for humanity. We don't often speak of Jesus in his terms. It seems funny to even say that because he's so exalted. But he left that position to be amongst us. He became a servant. He emptied himself. And it's the second use of the word of morphe or form that he uses. Form of God, now form of servant. Christ takes on this nature and status of a servant, or more accurately, more accurately, a bond servant, even slave. This is what Jesus does with his deity. He becomes a slave with the status of a slave. Remember, Paul is talking about our attitude being the same as Christ's. And so emptying and being born, these two concepts occur at the same time. They're simultaneous. Now, for a, uh, a Philippian resident hearing this message, they would think this is crazy. This makes no sense at all. 
for the Philippian believers, a slave meant a lower possible, the lowest possible rank in society. You're at the bottom. It wasn't so much a lack of freedom as it was that this is a debased and wretched position to be in. The notion of being of equal rank to God and then willingly giving that up to become a slave would strike the Philippians as abject folly. It would be incomprehensible, impossible to even think about. I'll give you an example. In your mind, think about the richest possible person you can imagine. Wealth, power, prestige. Can do whatever he wants. Go anywhere. Make any choices. And then one day, you're watching the news and you say, you hear news flash, richest man in the world is now living on the street with homeless people. What what, what would you think? Well, this this guy's lost his mind. He needs help. He's mentally ill. He's uh, given up a life of status and privilege and living on the street. But if his reason for doing that was to reach the homeless people and lift them up, forgiving them as forgiving them, and seeing them become saved, we would say of this person, ah, that's that's Christ. That's what Christ did. He left his position of power, prestige, glory, authority, and he came down here. That's the cost he paid. That's how far he's descending. Even to become born in the likeness of men. That's the incarnation. It literally means being made new, being born. So while Christ always exists in the form of God, he now exists in the likeness of human beings. In a way, that's a mystery. No one can explain it to you. That's how God describes himself. And the last part of this verse is that being found in human form. Um, the idea here is not the same word form as form of God, form of, of, uh, of servant. It's a different word, schemata, which basically just means, describes a king who takes his robes off and puts on sackcloth, change of clothing. So here, a better translation of being found in human form would be being found in human appearance. He looks exactly like a human being in every way, except he's sinless and he's perfect. But we haven't reached the bottom yet. There's still further that Jesus goes. And being found in human appearance, he humbles himself. The word humble can also be translated humiliated. It takes us back to verse 3, where we're supposed to humble ourselves and humility count others more significant than yourselves. So Christ chooses to humble himself. He's not humbled. He chooses as an act of his free will to do this. Now, the Philippians were quite familiar with this humiliation suffered by by slaves. But again, for somebody to accept this status would be strange, unless understood in the context of Christ. How does Christ do this? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Again, even talking about Jesus, Son of God, being obedient shows how far he's willing to come to redeem us. This marks the final lowest step downward that Jesus takes for us by becoming a human slave. Fee summarized it in this way. In Christ Jesus, God has shown his true nature. This is what it means for Christ to be equal with God, to pour out himself 
for the sake of others and to do so by taking the form of a slave. He not only reveals the character of God, but in the present context of Philippian believers and us, reveals what it means to be created in God's image, to bear his likeness, and to have this mindset pouring out of us. In a short while, 10 minutes or so, we'll be going to our communion where we celebrate the Lord's death and resurrection. We often think about communion during that time. We think about uh, Christ's physical suffering on the cross. We think about his spiritual anguish of bearing our sins. We don't often think about what Paul's emphasizing here, the social stigma of being publicly ridiculed, shamed, and humiliated by crucified, being crucified. This is our Savior. He did use his status as God for his advantage, but took on the nature of a servant, the very attitude that we're supposed to be doing as what Paul talks about. Can you imagine what would happen in this church if we all truly exercised the attitude of Christ? What would happen in your families if this kind of attitude was displayed? I'm not going to use my position of authority and power. I'm going to give that away and serve my family. What about your colleagues at work or your friends at school? This is radical thinking. This is different than the world thinks. And we do this. Doesn't a parent who has the authority of a parent, has the money, the power, the position, does the parent not stoop to bless their child? Who changes the diapers? Not the child. The parent does. That's your authority. Lay it aside to serve. We do it. It's part of our, our DNA when it comes to kids. It's much more difficult when it comes with each other. And we're called to copy Christ's sacrifice. That's why I was emphasizing that it has to come from him because it's not coming from me. It has to come from him giving us that ability. So, I spent a long time talking about verses 6 to 8. Verses 9 to 11 is a lot quicker. So don't worry. From this lowest position that Christ has come to, now we see God the Father stepping into the picture. We see now the rising, the ascent, the second part of the motion. We come to the exaltation of Christ. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The idea here I want to leave you with is that the exaltation of Christ is not God's way of saying to his son, thank you, you did a good job. It's not why he's commending him. It's not compensation for his sacrifice. It's proof of divine approval. I'll put it this way. If somebody important writes you a letter of reference, that means a lot more than a fellow worker. If the boss does it, that means something. If somebody else does it, it's not a boss, doesn't mean as much. Here, the highest form of praise being laid upon Jesus is God the Father. There's no other higher praise. And we all long for the day when we hear from Christ tell us, well done, 
my good and faithful servant. The point here is that Christ is not being exalted above what he had before. Rather, it's that God is exalting him to the highest possible position that's publicly demonstrated. How's it demonstrated? Well, because God says, I'm bestowing on him, I'm giving him through grace a name. Not just a name to be used as something you're called, but it can also mean reputation and fame. As in, he made a name for himself. In Mark 6.14, it says, King Herod heard about Jesus, for the name of Jesus had become known to him. The reputation of Jesus had become known to King Herod. So we can read this phrase as, God has granted Jesus the reputation that is above every reputation. It is the public acclamation of Jesus as Lord represents the heart of what transpires in the exaltation of Christ. What's the response of creation? As believers, we're already doing this. We've already done this. We do it every day, every moment. We bend the knee and we confess that Jesus is Lord. But Paul's doing something interesting here. For the Jewish converts in the Philippian church, they would know exactly what he's referring to. It's back to Isaiah 45.23, where it says, By myself I, that's Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, Yahweh, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now Paul is saying, the one who says that, that's Christ, Jesus. He's the one it applies to. Because now God is calling everyone to bend the knee before Christ. This demonstrates great reverence and submission in all realms of, of, uh, of creation. In ancient antiquity, they believed there was three areas of uh, existence. And so Paul uses three, heaven, earth, under the earth. He's essentially saying that Christ's honor has no boundaries. It goes everywhere. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. First is the physical, bending, then it's the confession of the mouth. It's a public acknowledgement, whether voluntary or under compulsion. For those compelled to bow and confess, this is not an act of worship and faith. This is a confession of truth, and there's a difference. And it directly challenges the emperor cult and worship of the so-called Philippian city. But Paul could have ended here, period. But he adds this last phrase, to the glory of God the Father. This is the final word. He could have ended the passage without that, but he chose to do this, and it's because the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ results in the glory given to God the Father. This is a beautiful climax to unity in humility. Garden writes, The Lord Jesus was neither selfish, nor did he seek vainglory, but even in his exaltation, all praises and honors and power go back to God the Father. Jesus neither rivals nor displaces God the Father, Thus, through the exaltation of Christ, God the Father receives public recognition that belongs to him. So you can see why this public display and glory to God is so important. Because we think of the attitude of Christ as being humble, self-giving, 
loving, sharing, sacrificing yourself for other people. But it does something else. It also displays the glory of the Father when this happens. It exalts Christ in our midst when this happens. And we cannot find a greater incentive to live a life like this than Christ himself. This is what Christ expects from each of us. Because we're redeemed by him and we're to live like him. So, what this means, okay, it's our turn now. So, how is, what do we do? What's our response to all this? I just say it's as simple as aligning your life with Christ. I'm aligning my life to his model. Not to the world's, not to the media's, not to other, other, other people. It's Christ I'm aligning myself to. And so it means receiving the attitude of Christ, which begins by a relationship. This is an act of faith with intentional verbal confession of your need and acceptance of Christ. Everyone will bow and confess him as Lord. Let today be the first day, if you've not already done that. The other aspect of this we take away is living in the attitude of Christ. As followers saved by grace, it is our privilege to exalt Christ by imitating him, by aligning ourselves to his way of living, which brings exaltation to him and glory to the Father. So we're to have this attitude among ourselves and live out this attitude in the power of the Holy Spirit who is transforming us to become like Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, it's uh, amazing that you left your place of deity, your position and status to become a human and a slave and die on the cross for us. Lord, as we uh, prepare ourselves to come and receive the elements of your table that you commanded us to, we ask, God, that you would fill us with uh, the very attitude of Christ as we live our lives for your glory. Amen.